We'd like to welcome you to our current event and weekly Bible study for 81008. And today we are going to be continuing with our study that we had started last week on the New King James, but this is going to be more segueing into a, a King James defense, I guess you would say. We're going to be looking at a lot of the different facets of this whole King James issue versus the other versions. And um, I'm going to start off with an article entitled, Bible Scholar Loses Voice on the John Ankenberg TV Show. Now again, this is just one facet of what we're going to be talking about today. This starts out by saying, you can call it pure justice, a sign from God or whatever you want. But eyebrows were sure raised recently during the tapings for Christian TV's The John Ankenberg Show. Ankenberg, who is a bitter opponent of the King James Bible, had wanted to do a series of TV programs in which the heads of the New Version Translation Committees, the NIV, the RSV, the NASV, the New King James, etc., would debate King James Bible advocates. Afraid that the King James people would get the upper hand and win the debate, Ankenberg attempted to stack the deck. He invited five New Version scholars, but only three King James advocates. Since Ankenberg is himself a fervent promoter of the NIV and other false versions, that made the odds 6-3. to three. But the three King James men, who were Dr. Joseph Chambers, Dr. Samuel Gipp, and Dr. Thomas Strauss, weren't deterred by the odds. They accepted Ankenberg's invitation anyway, so that they could get out of their vital and they could get out their vital and, and important message that the King James Bible is the only trustworthy, accurate, scholarly, and whole Bible available in the world in the English language. The John Ankenberg programs are taped in advance in Chattanooga, Tennessee and then shown later to a national TV audience. For the Bible version debate, eight shows were taped. However, on one of these shows, Ankenberg and the new Bible version people were forced to call an abrupt halt right in the midst of taping. It happened when Ankenberg asked Dr. Don Wilkins of the New American Standard Version Translation Committee a key question. He said, is it true, asked Ankenberg, that a number of scholars who worked on the new translation committees actually lost their voice as a punishment by God. As the TV's cameras captured the moment, Dr. Wilkins opened his mouth to answer, and nothing came out. No sound. Wilkins kept trying to clear his throat, but he couldn't respond. Ankenberg and other new version scholars were visibly startled. Finally, an embarrassed and frightened Wilkins was able to screech out a crackling, almost inaudible manner, I, I've lost my voice, is essentially what he said. As shocked, John Ankenberg ordered the cameras to be stopped and then back up. Whereupon, Dr. Joseph Chambers, a King James-only advocate, politely protested, quote, the cameras should be recording exactly what's happening here, Chambers insisted. In all fairness, I think that's true. But Ankenberg was hearing none of it. After a brief delay, the TV cameras began to roll again, after the amazing segment of Dr. Wilkins losing his voice had conveniently been excised. In other words, they cut it out. The most important thing they cut out, essentially. But our miraculous God wasn't through yet. Ankenberg had taped eight programs in all. But after broadcasting only two of them, he pulled the others off the air and refused to continue the series. When we called his office to ask why, we were pointedly told that it was because the series was a financial flop. When the first two of the eight programs aired, people did not send in enough money contributions. In other words, Ankenberg's claims that the series wasn't making enough money. He goes on to say, I watched one of the two programs that did air, however, and I believe there is another quite different reason why Ankenberg and the false version folks decided to pull the remainder. At one point, the new version scholars were clearly frustrated when Dr. Chambers asked them why, in, in an astounding 46 times in the NIV, the title of Master for our Lord Jesus had been changed to Teacher. Obviously, there is a vast difference between one who is a master and one who is a mere teacher. Such pointed episodes as this make me doubt Ankenberg's rationale as to why he quickly jerked the remaining programs from the broadcast schedule. If, as he claims, Ankenberg pulled the series because he wasn't bringing enough money, what does that tell us about his ministry? I mean, the love of money is the root of all evil. And, and these guys are obviously hirelings. And uh, if somebody's a hireling, what does that tell you? He's doing it for the hire. He has no true love for the sheep. He's not going to tell them the truth ultimately. He may give them some truth, 
but it's going to be 11 truth typically, and that's what you're seeing here. Um, so he goes on to say, is John Ankenberg in it only for the money? Is filthy lucre the sole measure for his programs that he airs or doesn't air? Well, I, I would say that's what they admitted to. So anyway, I thought that was kind of an interesting way to start this little lesson out regarding King James' defense. I've been meaning to do this a long time. This issue, though, can get so vast. There's so many different ways you can defend the King James issue. Um, and we're going to be trying to put this into a synopsis, like a condensed format, so that if you have somebody that is questioning regarding this issue, this might be a teaching you could forward them. And uh, in kind of a succinct way, a lot of the different issues are going to be addressed today. Now, I'm going to be reading excerpts from a, <clears throat> a reference guide called Fighting Back, a handy reference for King James Bible believers. It's by James L. Melton of Bible Baptist Church in Sharon, Tennessee. And he actually has this in a printed format as well that you can get. I think it's like 38 pages um, it's like a little booklet, 4 by 7 booklet. So it's a, kind of more of a reference tool that you could use regarding this issue. And starting out, uh, he goes on to say, As Bible-believing Christians, we believe that the words of the King James Authorized Version are the pure and preserved words for God and for the English-speaking people. This booklet has been written to help fellow Bible believers defend themselves against the fiery darts of the wicked Laodiceans and Alexandrians who do not believe that any human being should have a printed final authority to guide him through this wicked world of darkness and deceit. Now, when he says the wicked Laodiceans and Alexandrians, he's mostly in reference to the scholars, uh, the quote scholars and the people on these uh, translation committees and these types of people that have actually created these versions. Okay, So if somebody just has an NIV, as I did at one time, or a living translation as I did at one time, Understand, this isn't a condemnation against every single person that would own something like that. Uh, but what you want to do is, is we want to compare those translations against the King James and see, as, as we talked about with the New King James, if they're weighed and found wanting. Okay, that's what we're going to be really looking at today. So he says, I realize it is unusual to see a brief booklet addressing so many subjects because we're going to be covering a lot of little subjects today. But it's my personal belief that this is what many people need in the last days. The Bible Believer's helpful little handbook has been well accepted by Christians because of its variety, its brevity, and its scriptural content. I've tried to stick to the same basic principle in this booklet. Since this is a mainly a reference guide, it isn't necessarily for, for you to read the entire booklet in order to appreciate the many truths it contains. I really like the way this was written. It was short. It was to the point. Uh, and it covered a lot of different subjects that uh, a lot of times you might get a whole book to cover. But it kind of condensed it down. So each small section contains valuable truths that an active Bible believer may find helpful time after time. However, if you do take the time to read this entire booklet, you will learn many things that will increase your faith in God's preserved word. Now, faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So if you don't have the Word of God, or if the Word of God you're reading has been leavened, it's going to affect your faith. It has to. There's no other choice. It has to affect that. Faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. So if you're putting your faith in a polluted Word, and that's what your hope is, and they've removed all this stuff out of that Word, or they've changed things around, it's, again, it's going to affect your faith, right? It has to. From a biblical standpoint, this is why I'm so emphatic and dogmatic about this issue. Because the change that occurred in my life when the Lord showed me that the King James Bible was the uh, what was the preserved Word of God in the English language for our day, when He finally showed me this, and I'm not blaming God; He didn't do it sooner, but. When I finally got a hold of that, my whole life changed because all of a sudden my eyes got opened to other things that were going on at the time I was in a Pentecostal church. I wasn't seeing those things until I got my, until I got, started reading the King James Bible. All of a sudden it's like my eyes got opened to things that I had been blinded to before. And I mean, flagrant, obvious things. And so that's why I guess this issue is so, um, uh, real to me because I, I, I've lived it. And it is that important. So with this booklet, you'll be more equipped to do battle with the Alexandrian apostates who worked endlessly in their efforts to replace the two-edged sword of the King James Bible with a toothpick. 
These people take great delight in ridiculing and intimidating people like you and I, and far too often they win because we do not know the answers. It's just like a Jehovah Witness or a Mormon thing. They're, they're trained to attack their little niche issues that they have been versed and trained in. And that's exactly what you're going to encounter a lot of times if you're dealing with somebody on the King James issue. They're going to be trained in one or two niche things that are going to, if you're not uh, trained or knowing about these things, it's going to be very, very hard to combat this because you've never heard it before. Okay, So what we're trying to do today is equip you with that knowledge or at least start you on that path. Uh, going further... With a good knowledge of the information in the forthcoming pages, you can know the answers and you can win a few battles on your own. Now, this section is entitled, Reasons for Accepting the KJV is God's Preserved Word. Uh, God, number one, God promised to preserve his words. Okay, Where did he do that? Well, Psalm 12, 6 and 7 is the verse I quote quite a bit. And that verse reads, The words of the Lord are pure words as silver... Tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. Okay, so God has promised to preserve his word from this generation when, when you know, this was written in Psalms forever. So this is just one of the promises where God uh, does this. Uh, Jesus Christ also says in Matthew 24, 35, that heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. He's promised that. Okay? So we have to think to ourselves, okay, if he's promised to do this, and the Bible is very, very clear that God promises to preserve his word, where is it at? Is it in all the other hundreds of translations that have since spawned since 1881 on this revised uh, version translation that we're going to be talking about later? Is it all those different versions? How, how could it be? God's not the author of confusion. How could he have, you know... Hundreds of words of God. I mean, are they all right? How could they be? God is not the author of confusion. They can't all be right. Whereas the King James Bible is comes up from a totally separate line, and it's only one Bible. So that right there would kind of get you to start wondering, you know, in regard to what is the Word of God. Because there can only be one Word of God. It's not like there can be, in a particular language at least. So there has to be a preserved copy of God's pure words somewhere. Now, if it isn't the KJV, then what is it? Is it the NIV? Is it all these other versions that spawned? And again, we're going to be getting to that more soon. Uh, number two, it has no copyright. The text of the KJV may be reproduced by anyone, for there's no copyright forbidden in, it, in its duplication. This is not true with the modern perversions. Now, I, I got some dispute on this before saying that, yes, it's copywritten in England. Okay, in Okay, so let's give them that. Let's say that let's say Cambridge has a copyright right on it in England. Okay, England is a very small country on the face of the planet. Virtually every single where else on the face of the planet, it does not have a copyright. So, um, you know, I just wanted to throw that in just in case because I got an email on that before, and and I I have a whole email prepared, but I'm not going to get into that. Go down that rabbit trail today. The other. Modern translations, all of them are copywritten, every bit of them. Now, the reason is filthy lucre or money, because what has to happen is in order for a new translation to come out, there has to be a number of words that are changed, added, or removed in order for the new translation to actually have a copyright. Okay, has to be substantially different, and we talked about this last week in the New King James. Um, and that's the case for every one of these versions. The motivation is money, because every time they come out with a new copywritten version, they can release it in the Christian bookstores and make lots of money. It's the motivation. So, anyway, that, that's just more confirmation. Uh, three, the King James Version produces good fruit. And the Bible talks about you shall know them by their fruit. Matthew seven seventeen through 20. No modern translation can compare to the KJV when it comes to producing good fruit. For nearly 400 years, God has used the preaching and the teaching of the KJV to bring hundreds of millions to Christ. The Laodicean Christians might favor the new versions, but the Holy Spirit does not. You see, you have to look at the track record. Okay, fruit is something that, that is also, you're looking at a track record, right? Well, if you look at 
what's happened since 1881, when this whole thing really started with Westcott and Hort, with the modern translations, have we gotten closer to Christ? Are, are we better as, as, as a church body of Christ, you know, or are we falling away? Are we in that apostasy that the Bible clearly predicts is going to happen? Are we in the time of strong delusion that God said he was going to send according to Second Thessalonians? Are we in that time uh, that if it were possible they shall deceive the very elect? I think it's very obvious that's where we're at. So it's not as though the fruit of all these modern translations can be compared to the King James fruit, which we have all this track record prior to this. Uh, number four, the KJV was translated during the Philadelphia church period. Now, some people say, oh, this is bogus or whatever. There's no church periods or this or that. Well, the thing is, is if you look at this Philadelphia church period, let's, let's go ahead and do that right now. It's Revelation 3, 7 through 13. Revelation 3, 7 through 13. Let's see what God had to say about the, the Philadelphia church. And under the angel of the church of Philadelphia write, These things saith he that is holy and that is true. He that hath the key of David, he that openeth, and no man shutteth, and no man openeth. I know thy works, behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. For thou hast a little strength, and thou hast kept my word. It's the only time he says this in any of these uh, churches that are mentioned. Only time. Okay, so that's that's something to kind of think about there. Now, this Philadelphian, the word Philadelphia means brotherly love. That's why they call Philadelphia the city of brotherly love. I know it's one of the worst cities now on the planet, unfortunately, but uh, that's what the word means. Um, this was from a period of fifth, uh, approximately 1500 to the late 1800s. I, I would have to say, if you really, I, I believe it ended at 1881 when the revised version came out of Westcott and Hort. I believe it basically ended then. And um, it's the only church that is mentioned that says that they have kept my word and has not denied my name. Okay, We're going to see all the times that the NIV and all these other modern translations remove the name and the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, it's... Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds if you look at all the versions together. So doesn't this kind of make sense that we're reading this about the Philadelphia and we, and we have the King James Bible that was made in that particular time period? Um, and it says, you've kept my word and hast not denied my name. Now remember, we know what the Bible says at the end of Revelation where it talks about, you know, taking away from the words of the book of this prophecy, I'll take away your part out of the book of life and these types of things. These are very, very stern warnings. So keeping God's word is a very, very important, very serious issue we're talking about. This isn't some little superfluous issue that doesn't matter. This is key and integral to your faith. The word of God is the foundation of your faith, right? Well, the Bible says that the foundations be destroyed. What can the righteous do? This is the exact reason that these new translations have been introduced in the time area they've been introduced, is to leaven and to destroy the faith of the body of Christ, to get you to doubt the word of God, to do exactly like Satan or the serpent did in the Garden of Eden, where he, where he said to Eve, Yea, hath God said, questioning the word of God, becoming your own textual critic, that's exactly what the goal is here. You shall be as gods. You know, hey, you can be as a god. You can, you can decide what, co- what stays and what goes in the word of God. Well, that's pretty much putting yourself in a position that only God could be in. And that's exactly what Satan wants to do through these other versions. And then it says, Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not. Actually, that doesn't really apply to this. Um, anyway. Just ending at verse 8 there where it says, Thou hast kept my word and hast not denied my name. So that's pretty telling, that particular verse. Now the modern versions begin to appear rather late on the scene as the lukewarm Laodicean period gets underway. And again, uh, that is essentially, I believe, from around 1881. And you look at all the cults that have spawned since then. You know, or, or, or really got their their beginnings either... Shortly before that, or, or during that time frame of 1881, you know, the Jehovah Witnesses, the Mormons, all these kind of pseudo-Christian type cults, Seventh-day Adventists, all these 
pseudo-Christian cults really got revved up around that same as the Philadelphian church era was ending. They're all kind of getting cranked up during that time. A lot of different cults. Uh, we have the, the Pentecostals coming around and the Azusa Street Revival, you know, after that, these types of things. And uh, there's just a lot of leaven that entered in. Now, the Laodicean period, which like I said is 1881 until pretty much the end here. In verse 14 of Revelation 3 it says, And under the angel of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I, were, I would that thou wert cold or hot. Why? Because God is very black and white. He is an extremist, if you want to call it that way. You know, he, he wants to know, choose whom this day, who you're going to serve. Um, so because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of thy mouth. Okay, so this is kind of like a Christian self-check. But this is a really Christian self-check to the whole last day church, I would have to say. All you have to do is turn on the TV, uh, a Christian television or whatever, and to see how incredibly lukewarm the church is. Why aren't they talking about issues like this, or, or issues that we, we try to get into on a weekly basis here, in order to prepare the saints for what's coming? They're not doing that, because they are hirelings, because they are doing it for filthy lucre. They have their big TV ministries, or their 501c3 corporations. They're making tons of money. They're living in big houses, driving nice cars. They're, they're pretty much not even hardly offensive to the world anymore. Smiley Joel... Osteen, he's not offensive. About anybody could watch him and not get offended. But the preaching of the cross and, and, and the Bible should be offensive to the unsaved world if you're preaching it properly. Okay, Not to say that that's our goal to try to offend everyone, but uh, it's not going to be something that most people are going to receive with all readiness of mind. They're going to reject it. Because narrow is the way which leadeth to life eternal, and few there be that find it. That's just a fact. I'm not being, trying to be negative. It's just a fact. So it goes on to say that in verse 17, Because thou sayest I am rich, and increased with goods, and have need of nothing, and knowest not. See, they don't know. They think all the stuff about themselves. Okay, They've refused to humble themselves before God, obviously. We can draw that conclusion from this portion of Scripture. I mean, they say I'm rich and increase in goods and have need of nothing, and knowest not, they don't know it, that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Now, that's how they appear before God. They look at themselves one way. Hey, I'm a pretty good guy. They look at themselves in the mirror or whatever. I'm better than him or, or this or that. But they don't even know that they're wretched, miserable, and poor, blind, and naked in God's eyes. That's the sad state of affairs in the day and time we're living in. And I, how could you argue it? You, you look around, you, look at, you see what goes on or passes for uh, Christianity in uh, most modern-day 501c3 corporations they call churches. They don't have any concept of the King James Bible being the Word of God. They're reading some you know, perversion. And, and everybody's got their own different versions. God's not the author of confusion. So you kind of have to question that. They're in a corporation yoked up with the government. They have, they have got their right to exist from the government. Because in order to secure that tax-exempt status, they had to go to the government, to the Internal Revenue Service, and essentially have this whole thing formed that they call a church. So they got that going on. They've, a lot of times they have their Christian rock music in the churches. They've... They've um, got all kind of worldly programs going on. They're doing all types of things to bring the world into their church, to make it more friendly to the world. They're just one big leavened mess is essentially what's going on in most churches. Now, I'm not saying that because I think I'm perfect or better. I've been there. I've done it. Okay, But once I really got a hold of this, the Bible says, Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. Wherefore, be not partakers of her plagues, as the Bible talks about in Revelation. I don't want to be partakers of the Laodicean church's plagues. I really don't. And as a watchman, I'm called to expose and to reprove the unfruitful works of darkness that are going on within those institutions. That's what I'm called to do. 
if nobody is warned about this particular issue, nobody will ever think that there's anything wrong unless they do their own research. So there needs to be people out there that are warning about what's going on. And there are. There, there's there's um, probably hundreds of ministries out there that are. So if we go further, it says in uh, verse 18, I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire that thou mayest be rich. Now, this is the trial of our faith. Okay, I can prove that, but I don't want to go down that rabbit trail too far today. And then white raiment that thou mayest be clothed in that the shame of thy nakedness does not appear and anoint thine eyes with eyesight that thou mayest see. Because remember before it said, it, it talked about where they said, I'm rich, increasing goods and need nothing, and knowest not. See, they, they can't see. They don't see it. They, they don't hear it. They don't see it. They think that, how could I be in this church, in this big church with all these other people, or on this ministry, and on this big TV ministry, given to this ministry, and they, they say they're doing these mighty things for God, and I know my money's being put to good use. They're buying into the lie. And, and there's strength in numbers. So if you're part of a group, the bigger the group, it's human nature to think the bigger the group, the less likely it is that I'm in error. How could all of us be in error? But that's the very state that the Bible predicted the average, I guess, Christian would be in in the end times. It predicts it here. It predicts it many places. The biggest warning that Jesus Christ gave was to be not deceived regarding the end times. And that's exactly the time we're living in. And if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. Now, I had somebody ask me one time, well, yeah, but how do we know it's possible? Well, ask yourself this question. Is it possible for you on any given day to be deceived about something? We all are. I am. I'm sure there's going to be something I learned tomorrow that I didn't know. Okay? So don't ever think you're above being deceived. Point is, is are you going to humble yourself before the Lord and go into his word and find out truth? Because the Bible says, or Jesus said, if you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. So it's, it's dependent upon you continuing in his word. And again, if you don't even have his word, or if it's a perverted word, how are you going to continue in it properly? Very, very hard to do. So going back to this article, the King James was uh, King James Version was produced back in 1611, just in time for the great many revivals between 1700 and 1900. The Philadelphia Church was the only church that did not receive a rebuke from the Lord Jesus Christ, and it was the only church that, quote, kept God's word, as we talked about. So, something to look at there. Number five, the King James translators were honest in their work. When the translators had to add certain words largely due to idiom changes, they placed the added words in italics so we would know the difference. This is not the case of many new translations. Six, all new translations compare themselves to the KJV. Isn't it strange that the newer versions never compare themselves to one another? For some strange reason, they all line up against one book, the authorized 1611. Oh, King James Version. The King James translators believed they were handling the very words of God. According to 1 Thessalonians 2.13. Let's go ahead and look at that. 1 Thessalonians 2.13 says, For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when ye received the word of God, which ye heard of us, ye received it, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. So just reading the King James uh, Bible dedica dedicatory and compare it to the prefaces in the modern translation versions, immediately you will see a world of difference in the approach and the attitude of the translators. Which group would you pick for translating a book? In other words, the, many of these new, new version translators were very flippant, arrogant, and acting as though, you know, well, I'm a textual critic. I can, t I can decide what stays and what goes. You're going to see a stark difference between the King James translators, the way that they approach things, and the way these modern translators approach things. Very shortly here. The King James is supported by far more evidence also. Of over 5,300 pieces of manuscript evidence, 95% supports the King James Bible. Changes in the new versions are based upon the remaining 5% of the manuscripts, most of which are from Alexandria, Egypt. There are only two lines of Bibles. The devil's line from Alexandria, Egypt, 
And the Lord's line from Antioch will deal with this matter later. Number nine, no one has ever proven that the KJV is not the word of God. The 1611 should be considered innocent until proven guilty with a significant amount of genuine manuscript evidence. Number ten, the KJV exalts the Lord Jesus Christ. The true scripture should testify of Jesus Christ, according to John 5.39. There is no book on the planet which exalts Christ higher than the King James Bible. In numerous places, the new perversions attack the deity of Christ, the blood atonement, the resurrection, salvation by grace alone and him through faith, and the second coming. The true scriptures will testify of Jesus Christ and not attack him. Now here's another thing to also consider. The Bible says in Proverbs 13, 13, Whoso despiseth the word shall be destroyed. Oh, isn't that weird? Proverbs, the book of wisdom, 13, 13, the number of rebellion twice. Hmm. Whoso despiseth the word shall be destroyed. Well, I would say in God's eyes, what he was trying to tell us there is that for somebody, the, the maximum amount of way that you could probably despise the Lord on this plane of existence we live in is despising his word. Because Jesus said in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. The same in the beginning was God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And then it goes on to say that the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. So, the um, Jesus is, is often integrally related with the word. Okay? He even said that he was the word, the incarnate word, so to speak. So, when you despise the word of God, not only can we look at those warnings at the end of Revelation that we're, we're talking about, but... When when you when you embrace these other versions, and and uh, particularly in light of all the things that we're looking at today, isn't that rebellion toward God? Isn't that a form of rebellion toward God? You're despising His word. Whoso despises the word shall be destroyed. So this is not something that I would a position that I would want to put myself in or try to test God in. And what could we be doing to ourselves on a spiritual level? reading these other versions, embracing these other versions, and becoming these modern-day textual critics like they encourage us to be. It's just a very risky position, I believe, you're putting yourself in. uh, Doug just brought up a good point that many of the preachers, of, particularly of old, uh, when they would preach, they would approach the pulpit with essentially every week with absolute fear and trembling because they knew that they were bringing forth the word of God to these people. And that's a tremendous responsibility. It's a severe responsibility. It's not something to be, to be taken lightly. And, and in times past, that was the uh, prevailing attitude with, with many of the great uh, preachers of old. And now, today... <laughs> You know, you don't have any of that. You know, it's, it's essentially, if you were to go to most churches or, or go turn on the TV, there isn't a, a spirit or a, uh, any type of fear of God. There's no real reverence uh, of the Lord. It's just more of this flippant, you know, God is the big guy in the sky, and we're just going to come here and placate our, our little whatever, our little consciences, and, and feel like we got a little dose of bro cream religion today, a little dabble do ya. And, uh, you know, we're all going to go home happy and feeling good over that feel-good message. And, and yeah, we'll, we'll put some money in the plate because we like the message. And that's essentially why these, these people, uh, these ministries are garnering and gaining so much money. Um, because if you start preaching hard and you start to preach about truth, your donations are going to go way, way down most of the time. And people are going to leave your church and you're not going to be popular. Well, our lives as Christians shouldn't be popularity contests. And the Bible says that that which is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. So you got a guy like you know, Joel, Joel Osteen or whatever, probably the best example, where he is highly esteemed among even the secular world, really. He's not going to say anything to offend anybody, really. And, um, but that type of person that is highly esteemed among man is an abomination in the sight of God. It's kind of like where the Bible says, verily you have your reward. You got your reward now while you're here on earth. Now all Joel's going to look to, and unfortunately his followers, if they're not saved, and I can't believe a lot of them could be saved, because if the Holy Spirit were living inside you, why would you stay in a church like this? And if you're in one of those types of churches, you better ask yourself that same question, because this is a very serious matter. I mean, are you under this type of preaching and you don't see anything wrong with it? 
This this spineless, backboneless, non-warning, non-biblical, uh, preaching out of some perversion Bible in some 501c3 church, and there's no conviction that you've done anything, that you're doing anything wrong. Well, you need to really uh, pray about that. Because that's not a, an enviable position to find yourself in in regard to the Lord. So here's some questions for the KJV critics. These are Okay, so these would be questions you would pose to King James Bible critics. Since you're smart enough to find mistakes in the King James Bible, why don't you correct them all and give us a perfect Bible? First question. Pretty good one. I, I, I love it how this guy kind of turns things around. Because the thing that I've seen is that this particular attack against the King James Bible, is usually all a one-way attack Many of, much of the time. It's like we're defending ourselves all the time. We find ourselves put in this defense position. But this is a very offensive... You can be very offensive in this thing. And I don't mean offending. I'm talking about offensive, meaning, you know, listen, you've got plenty of ammunition regarding this issue. We've got way more than they've got. Okay, And this is kind of a way of turning a lot of these things around, these questions. And then another question you could ask them, well, then do you have a perfect Bible? And if so, which, which perversion is it? Is it the NIV, the NASV? Well, hold on, God's not the author of confusion. How could they all be right? Forever, O oh Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. So does God have like every, as soon as a new copywritten translation comes out, does he have the new one pop up in heaven? Oh, here's another word. They're all my words. No, they're not. They, they can't all be God's words. Uh, another question. Since you believe the Bible is our final authority in all matters of faith and practice, could you please show us where Jesus, Peter, James, Paul, and or John ever practiced your terminology regarding the Greek text says, or the Hebrew text says, or the originals say, or a better rendering would be, or older manuscripts read, etc., etc. Okay, what is all that? What what is all that stuff doing? Questioning the Word of God, playing God, playing just exactly what Satan did, the serpent did in the Garden of Eden. Question God's Word. He's no different today. I, I just really believe this is one of the reasons that one of the main reasons, if not the main reason, the church has become so leavened since 1881 because of these all all these. False versions that are out there. Another question. Since you do not profess to have a perfect Bible, why do you refer to it as God's Word? Another question. Remembering that the Holy Spirit is the greatest teacher, according to John 16, 12 through 15, 1 John 2, 27, who taught you that the King James Bible was not infallible, the Holy Spirit or man? It's always man. Always man. Because they're the ones that come against it. Okay? So, it, is the Holy Spirit guiding them to come against the King James Bible and inspiring them to make all these perversions? So these are these are honest questions I think we could ask ourselves. Because again, the King James is always getting attacked. Why not turn this around? Here's another question. Since you believe in the degeneration of man and the degeneration of the world system in general, why is it that you believe education has somehow evolved? And that men are more qualified to translate God's word today than in 1611. I mean, we've just talked about the degeneration that's occurring. But evidently, we're more spiritual now. We're better now. We can do this. Yes. We know what we're doing. As the Bible's getting more and more watered down. Now, again, this is a progression. The revised version of 1881, the Bibles are way worse now. Way worse than they were back then. Is it because we're getting closer to God? So many things become obvious when you start looking at it in this light, I think. This is what I like about this little booklet that we're reading from here. Here's another question. There is one true God, yet many false gods. There is one true church, consisting of true born-again believers in Christ, yet there are many false churches. So why do you think it is so wrong to teach that there is one true Bible and many false Bibles? Why is that wrong? Here's another question. Isn't it true that you believe God's inspired his holy words in the originals, but has since lost them? Since no one has, since no one has a perfect Bible today. So let me read that again. Isn't it true that you believe God's in, inspired his holy words in the originals, but has since lost them, since no one has a perfect Bible today? Um, but again, that would contradict Psalm 12, 6, and 7, where we talk about 
the words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in the furnace of earth. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord, thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. And then Matthew 12, 35, where heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. Another question, isn't it true that when you use the term the Greek text, you're being deceitful and lying, since there are many Greek texts that you could quote from rather than just one? They just like to say the Greek, like there's one good one that they're quoting from. Another question, before the first new perversion was published in 1881, the revised version of Westcott and Hort, the occultists, we're going to talk about them later, The King James Bible was published. This was before 1881. It was published, preached, and taught throughout the world. God blessed the efforts of the hundreds of millions that were were saved. Today, with the many new translations on the market, very few people are actually being saved. That's pretty obvious, right? The great revivals are over. Who has gained the most from the new versions, God or Satan? Wow, this is pretty, really thought-provoking questions here. Now, let's talk about Next, Antioch versus Alexandria. We hear much talk about how the older and the more authoritative manuscripts, but we aren't hearing much about the origin of these manuscripts. It is well-established fact that there are only two lines of Bibles, one coming from Antioch, Syria, known as the Syrian or the Byzantine text type, and one coming from Alexandria, Egypt, known as the Egyptian or the Hessenian text type. The Syrian text from Antioch, is the majority text from which our King James 1611 comes from. And the Western, the Egyptian text, is the minority text from which the new perversions come from. Never mind Rome and her Western text, where she got her manuscripts from Alexandria, Egypt, originally. And uh, we're going to look at that, too. The manuscripts from Antioch were mostly copied by Bible-believing Christians for the purpose of winning souls and spreading the word of God. The manuscripts from Alexandria were produced by infidels such as Origen, Adamantius, Clement of Alexandria. These manuscripts are corrupted with Greek philosophy. The Bible warns about you know, being corrupted with philosophy in uh, Colossians 2.8. And allegorical foolishness, which is not believing in God's word literally. The strange thing is that most Christians aren't paying any attention to what God's word says about these two places in regard to Alexandria, Egypt, and uh, Antioch, Syria. We're going to look at what the Bible says about those two places where these two streams originated from, the good stream and the bad stream. Now, notice how the Holy Spirit casts Egypt and Alexandria in a negative light, while his comments on Antioch tend to be very positive. And again, there's a lot of little facets to this conversation, and this is just one thing, but it's very interesting. Let's talk about Egypt and Alexandria first. Now remember, this is where all the modern new translations ultimately spawned from. Egypt is first mentioned in connection with Abraham, not trusting the Egyptians around his wife. Genesis 12, 10 through 13. Joseph, who is one of the greatest types of Christ, he's not Jesus Christ, but he's a type of Christ, Joseph, one of the greatest types of Christ in the Bible, was sold into Egypt as a slave, according to Genesis 37-36. Joseph did not want his bones left in Egypt, Genesis 50-25. God killed all the firstborn of Egypt, Exodus 12-12. God calls Egypt the house of bondage, Exodus 24. God calls Egypt an iron furnace, Deuteronomy 4-20. The kings of Israel were forbidden to get horses from Egypt, Deuteronomy 17.16, so why, was she, why should we look for a Bible there? They, the kings were told not to even go there to get horses, and we're going to go there to get our Bible? Well, I didn't get my Bible from Egypt, I got it from the local bookstore. Ultimately, though, what was translated ultimately into, from the original into what you have now came from Alexandria, Egypt. This is the point we're trying to make here. Another thing, the Jews were forbidden to go into Egypt for help. Jeremiah 42, 13-19. God plans to punish Egypt, Jeremiah 46, 25. God calls his son out of Egypt, Hosea 11, 1, and Matthew 2, 15. Egypt is placed in the same category as Sodom, according to Revelation eleven eight. The first time Alexandria is mentioned in the Bible, it is associated with unbelievers, persecution, and the eventual death of Stephen. According to Acts 6, 9 and, and uh, Acts 7, 54 through 60. The next mention of Alexandria involves a lost preacher 
who has set, has to be set on straight on his doctrine in Matthew or in Acts eighteen twenty four through twenty six. Now again, looking at all these things, kind of throw a red flag up, right? About well, maybe we don't want to go to Egypt or Alexandria. It always seems like it's mentioned in a negative context. Exactly. So if we go further, the last two times we read about Alexandria is in Acts twenty seven six and Acts twenty eight eleven. Here we learn that Paul was carried to his eventual death in Rome by two ships from Alexandria. Just a lot of really weird, macabre stuff about Alexandria and Egypt. Alexandria was the second largest city of the Roman Empire, when Rome, with Rome being the first. It was founded in 1332 BC by Alexander the Great, a type of Antichrist in Daniel 8. It was located on the Nile Delta. Alexandria was the home of the Pharos Lighthouse, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Also, during the 2nd and 3rd centuries BC, it was a home of a massive library containing between 500,000 and 700,000 volumes. It was also home of the catechal school once headmastered by the great apostate Origen. So, question. In light of what God's word says about higher knowledge and philosophy, uh, Romans one twenty two, where it talks about professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. And then Colossians 2.8, let's just look at that one real quick. Colossians 2.8 says, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit, after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. So this word, it, it, spoil, um, is, is another way of actually saying to capture the mind as well. Or to like brainwash, okay? Which is what's being done on a spiritual level to a certain extent when you read these other versions. Now, I'm not saying it's not possible to be saved reading an NIV, okay? Because I, I actually was saved um, reading a book called En Route to Global Occupation by uh, Gary Kaw, I believe. And in that book, he quoted the NIV. I'm not saying there's not enough gospel, but it's a still 11 gospel. Okay, I didn't get on track, though, as a Christian, until I got a King James Bible in my hand, which was about four years later. So even though I firmly believe I was saved, I saw the chase of the Lord on me, the whole nine yards, I still didn't get on track until I came to this realization regarding the King James Bible, which was four years later. So I had four years where I was kind of spinning my wheels. Had I had this truth from the very beginning, who knows? I don't know. But I, I can't imagine that, that it was uh, helpful for me to be deceived by this thing. Okay, So again, you have to ask yourself, why would any serious Christian expect to find the true word of God in Alexandrian Egyptian manuscripts? And then let's talk about Antioch. Now, we're going to talk more about this whole Alexandrian Egyptian thing later. Okay, um, But Antioch, let's look at Antioch. Antioch, Syria. Upon its first mention, we find that Antioch is the home of, of a spirit-filled deacon in Acts 6, 3 through 5. In Acts eleven nineteen, Antioch is a shelter for persecuted saints. The first major movement of the Holy Ghost among Gentiles occurs in Antioch, according to Acts eleven twenty through 21. Paul and Barnabas taught the Bible in Antioch for a whole year, Acts eleven twenty six. The disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Acts 11.26. It's the first time that word was ever used. The church in Antioch sends relief to the poor saints in Jerusalem. Acts 11.27-30. The first missionary journey is sent out from Antioch. Acts 13.1-3. Antioch remains the home base or headquarters of the early church. Acts 14.19-26 and 15.35. The final decision of the Jerusalem Council was first sent to Antioch. Acts 15.19-23 and verse 30. Because Antioch was its home base. Antioch was the location of Paul setting Peter straight on his doctrine, according to Galatians 2.11. Founded in 300 B.C. by Seleucus Nicator, Antioch was the third largest city of the Roman Empire. Located in Syria, about 20 miles inland from the Mediterranean on the Orontes River, Antioch had it on its seaport and more than its share of travelers and tradesmen. In his infinite wisdom, God picked this ideal location as a home base. Antioch was far enough away from the culture and the traditions of the Jews 
of Jerusalem and Judea and the Gentiles of Rome, Greece, and Alexandria that the new Christians could grow in the Lord. Meanwhile, its geographical location was ideal for taking God's word into all the world. So, friend, you have a choice. You can get your Bible from Alexandria, Egypt, or you can get it from Antioch. If you have a KJV, then your Bible is based on manuscripts from Antioch. If you have a new version, then you are one of the many unfortunate victims of Satan's salesmen from Alexandria, Egypt. The next thing we're going to talk about is the Sinaiticus and the Vaticanus. These are the two different manuscripts that we're going to talk about right now that comprise the revised version of 1881. So when someone corrects the King James Bible with more authoritative manuscripts or older manuscripts or the best authorities, they're usually making some reference to the Sinaiticus or the Vaticanus. These are two very corrupt 4th century unicles that are practically worshipped by modern scholars. These are primary manuscripts that Westcott and Hort relied on so heavily when constructing their Greek text from 1851 to 1871 on the new versions on which all the new versions are essentially based. The Vaticanus B is the most worshipped. This manuscript was officially cataloged in the Vatican Library in 1475 and is still the property of the Vatican today. So understand, if you have one of these new versions, the underlying text is not only Alexandrian Egyptian from the, from the polluted Egyptian text, but it's also Catholic heresy to the absolute core. Does that sit right as a Christian? This manuscript was officially... Okay, I already said that, I'm sorry. The Sinaiticus... Uh, or the Sinaiticus or Alfi was discovered in a trash can at St. Catherine's Monastery on Mount Sinai by Count Tischendorf, a German scholar, in the year 1844. Now, we could do a whole study on that. That is fact. He did discover it at this monastery. I have seen actually documentaries on this monastery. It is the most macabre place you have ever seen. They've got one room, this particular monastery, where the Sinaiticus was found in the trash can, they've got one whole room of human skulls stacked up on one another. Guess who they are? They're all the old dead monks that died before them. Now, is that morbid? Oh, they got, it gets better. They've got another room where they've got this one, they've got this old monk's dead body. Um, it's all bones. But he's like, it's like he's chained to the wall, like with um, uh, chains. I've seen... I've seen a documentary on this place. It is morbid. But yes, that's where, that's where the Sinaiticus was found, which was one of the major underlying texts of the modern versions. I mean, there's so many things that throw up red flags here in regard to this issue. So that was St. That was Catherine's Monetary at the base of Mount Sinai. It was discovered by Count Tischendorf, a uh, German scholar in 1844. Both the uh, Sinaiticus and the Vaticanus are Roman Catholic manuscripts, both of them, remember that. You might also familiarize yourself with these following facts. Tischendorf, who had seen both of these manuscripts that we just mentioned, believed they were written by the same man, possibly Eusebius of Caesarea, 260 to 340 AD. The Vaticanus was available to the King James translators, but God gave them sense enough to ignore it. The Vaticanus omits, listen to this, this is what the Vaticanus omits. Okay. It omits Genesis 1, Genesis 1, verse 1 through 46, <laughs> and, um, and evidently uh, chapter 28 of Genesis. It also omits Psalms 106 through 138. Oh, hey, let's just knock out about how many Psalms is that? Over 30 Psalms. Let's take out the first 46 verses of the Bible in Genesis. Let's take out, uh, then it also takes out Matthew 6, verses 2 through 3. It takes out Romans 16, verse 24. It takes out 1 Timothy through Titus. And the entire book of Revelation. I mean, is this insane? This is what the Vaticanus omits. Just kind of conveniently omits, oh, well, there's superfluous stuff. It takes out 1 Timothy through Titus. In the entire book of Revelation? Oh yeah. Yeah, you didn't know that, did you? It actually ends at the book of Hebrews. It ends at Hebrews 9.14. That's where the, their Bible ends, the Vaticanus. Okay. So, 
It also adds what they call the epistle of Barnabas and the shepherd of Hermaeus to the New Testament. Now, according to the research I've seen, there's a high likelihood that in the end times, these two books are going to be inserted back into the Bible. They're going to totally remove the book of Revelation, just like it was in the Vaticanus. And they're going to leave it the way it was in the Vaticanus, in fact, because they're going to have the epistle of Barnabas and the shepherd of Hermes, which are two uh, little apostate reprobate, false books inserted into the Bible. In those books, it has all kind of things like take the mark of the beast, kill the Christians, these types of things. They're really, really, really bad. Okay, But that's what it had inserted in there already. The Sinaiticus omits John 5, 4, John 8, 1 through 11. It, it omits Matthew 6, 16, 2 through 3, Romans 16, 24, Mark 16, verses 19 through 20, Acts 8, 37, 1 John 5, 7, just to name a few. Okay, So the Sinaiticus has a whole bunch of omissions as well. It is believed that the Sinaiticus has been altered by as many as ten different men. Consequently, it is a very sloppy piece of work, which is probably the reason for being found in a trash can. Not always a good sign when you find something in a trash can. It'd be like, you know, hey, that sandwich looks okay. There's nothing wrong with it. I'm going to eat it. That donut looks good. I mean, hey, it's, it's in the trash. It's on top of the trash. So it's not technically maybe serious trash yet. It's essentially what happened with this version. Many manuscript errors, such as missing words and repeated sentences, are found throughout it. The Dutch scholar Erasmus of 1469 through 1536, who produced the first world's uh, first Greek printed New Testament, rejected the teachings of the Vaticanus and the Sinaiticus. The Vaticanus and the Sinaiticus not only disagree with the majority text from which the KJV, the King James Bible, came, they also differ from each other. Now, just so you know, when Westcott and Hort, who we're going to be talking about next, when they were translating, they, they were using these two manuscripts, the Vaticanus and the Sinaiticus. These are the two manuscripts that we can trace their lineage back to Alexandria, Egypt. These two manuscripts were the underlying uh, text for the Revised Version of 1881. The Revised Version of 1881 is what has spawned virtually every modern-day translation that we have today, just about. So this is the underlying text. If you read in an NIV Bible or a New American Standard, or a New World Translation, or a Living Bible, understand what we're talking about applies to the Bible that you're reading. So let's make it real. Because this, you could say yes, but it's very important for you to understand how that this is a very real thing that, that we're dealing with here. So, when the Vaticanus and the Sinaiticus disagreed with each other, okay, when Westcott and Hort, the two high-level occultists, the trans that uh, made this translation of 1881, the Revised Version, when they disagree with each other, they found this brilliant way of, of discerning which one to pick. And they said, well, we'll just pick the, the Vaticanus. Whenever the Sinaiticus disagrees with the Vaticanus, which it did in hundreds of places, we'll just pick the Vaticanus. That's, that's our scholarly method of, of translation. That's what they did. Okay, now remember, the Vaticanus was the one that had omitted the books uh, Titus through First. Timothy, uh, it had taken the whole book of Revelation out and all the other things that had inserted the epistle of Barnabas and the shepherd of Hermes. The, you understand how much ammunition that you have as, as a King James Bible reader? Okay, you can't, it, it's, just, it's just amazing how much ammunition there is. So, the Vaticanists and the Sinaiticus not only disagree with the majority text from which the KJV came, they also differ from each other. In the four Gospels alone, they differ over 3,000 times. And again, is God, God is not the author of confusion. It's just right there, you know it's false. So, when someone says the, that the Vaticanus and the Sinaiticus are the oldest available manuscripts, they are lying. There are many Syriac and Latin translations as far back as the 2nd century that agree with the King James readings. For instance, the Peshitta of 145 AD and the Old Syriac of 400 AD both contain strong support for King James Bible. There are about 50 extant copies of the Old Latin from about 157 AD, which is over 200 years before Jerome, was conveniently chosen by Rome to revise it. The Euphilius produced a Gothic version for Europe 
in A.D. 330, the Armenian Bible, which agrees with the King James Bible, has over 1,200 extant copies and was translated by Mezarab around the year 400. The Sinaiticus and the Vaticanus are clearly not the oldest and best manuscripts. And, and again, you'll, you'll hear this term, old, batted around quite a bit. The only reason that the Vaticanus and the Sinaiticus are old is because even the apostate Catholics knew they were no good and they set on the shelf, nobody would even touch them. So they set on the shelf, they weren't being used, therefore they lasted. Whereas the other copies that we're, we're talking about that came from Antioch were being used constantly and used up. Okay? Just like if you had a Bible your whole life and you're using it a lot, you're going to, you know, eventually the thing's going to wear out. It's the same thing back then. So I'm going to go ahead and end part one here and we'll, we'll start part two shortly.